We're on the record. I'm senior supervising producer Maureen Harvey in for Sheila Cast. Good morning. The Black Lives Matter protests that followed the death of George Floyd changed the global conversation about race in 2020. They energized discussions about what to do about racial disparity and racial segregation in this country. But what will it take to move from discussion to action? One of the books that sought to explain how Americans ended up so segregated was Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Originally published in 2017, the book shot to the top of the New York Times bestseller list in 2020. Author Richard Rothstein returns to the issue of segregation in his new book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law, co-written with his daughter Leah. Richard Rothstein is a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow emeritus at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you very much. Leah Rothstein is an expert on affordable housing policy and a consultant for nonprofit developers, local governments, and private firms. Welcome, Leah. Hi. Richard, when did you know another book on housing segregation, some might call it a sequel to Color of Law, was needed? Well, Color of Law explained how government had segregated this country how it wasn't the result of private activity. It wasn't so-called de facto segregation. It was unconstitutional and unlawful segregation. That book was a book of history. It educated people about how we came to be the segregated society that we are. And as I went around the country giving talks about the book and interviews like this and people read the book, they all said to me, well, it's important that we learn this history we're surprised we weren't taught it in school, but what can we do about it now? And I heard that question often enough that I thought that I had to write a sequel that explained to people what actually they can do. As you mentioned, in 2020, there were Black Lives Matter demonstrations. 20 million people participated in them. There were whites and blacks, urban and suburban, low income and middle income. And then at the end of those demonstrations, Many of those people went home, put Black Lives Matter signs on their lawns, and did nothing further. And we thought that was probably because they didn't know what to do, and nobody had asked them to do anything. So I asked my daughter, Leah, who knows more about housing policy than I do, to help me write a book explaining to them what they can do in their own local communities to redress the segregation whose history they now understand. We don't think that there's a national appetite for federal policy that's going to make a significant dent in racial segregation. But once you have a segregated society, it's reinforced, sustained, and exacerbated by local programs and policy, which are easily accessible for change by local groups and local activists, concerned citizens who want to make a real dent in the segregation of their communities. So Leah, just how segregated are we? We're extremely segregated. You know, we're focusing on the segregation and separation of African-Americans and whites. That type of segregation hasn't changed much in the last many decades. Certainly since the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968, we're just as segregated as we were then. The wealth gap between blacks and whites is just as big as it was in 1968. The homeownership gap 
is growing, um, hasn't gotten any better since then. So the segregation of our communities, metropolitan areas all over the country, you know, anywhere you live, you can look around and see that we are a racially segregated society. And even though we have laws like the Fair Housing Act that outlaw future discrimination in the sale and rental and housing, we have the legacy of those past policies described in the color of law that set up and maintain um, the segregation of our communities. And without action that's intentionally taken to address those ongoing consequences of those government actions of the past, we're not going to get out of this um, segregation that we live in and have come to accept. Leah, you mentioned the the wealth gap. Research published this month by the Brookings Institution finds that in 2022, for every $100 in wealth held by white households, black households held only $15. How much of the racial wealth gap between African-American and white families comes down to home ownership? A huge part of it is um, due directly to the past government policies that subsidized white families to get into home ownership when home ownership was affordable. So I'll, I'll explain a little bit more. In the in the mid 20th century after World War II, the federal government helped to subsidize building suburbs all over the country. So they provided loan guarantees to developers who would build suburban communities outside of urban areas where they didn't exist before. We weren't a suburban economy at the time. Um, these developers couldn't have built the suburbs and subdivisions they built all over the country without the support of the federal government. Now, the federal government, in explicit policy written in its manual, wouldn't provide this type of subsidy and support for developers to build suburbs unless they agreed to put deed restrictions or racially restrictive covenants on the deeds of the homes that they built, saying that those homes could only be bought and ever occupied by whites. So by government policy, African-Americans were explicitly prohibited from buying into these new suburban developments. Now, these suburban developments, when they were created, were affordable. The homes in those areas sold for about $100,000 in today's money. Any working family could afford that at home. They got um, mortgages you know, financed by the Federal Housing Administration with low interest rates. If, if these white families, um, if they were veterans, they got a no down payment um, loan from the Veterans Administration. So they bought into home ownership when it was affordable. Those homes, $100,000 at the time, now are worth far more than $100,000. In many suburbs around the country, five hundred, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars $800,000, and some over a million. So those white families who were subsidized into home ownership when it was affordable built wealth over generations that they could use to enjoy their retirements or, you know, weather bouts of unemployment. And most importantly, bequeath that wealth to their children and grandchildren to buy their own homes that it would then accumulate in value as well. African-American families shut out of home buying when it was affordable now don't have the intergenerational wealth needed to get into home ownership. So that's why we have this huge wealth gap we have today. This is On the Record. I'm producer Maureen Harvey speaking with Leah and Richard Rothstein about their new book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. Richard, segregation is in the subtitle of this book, yet you avoid terms like racism and racist. Why? I think those terms have become overused and they don't mean much anymore. They're more a weapon than a description. Uh, the term racism can go anywhere from uh, uh, somebody innocently mistaking uh, one African-American person to another to lynching. 
a term that's that broad uh, is useless. And so we prefer to talk about specific uh, offenses, unconstitutional policies, unlawful policies pursued by government that as American citizens, we have a, an obligation to remedy. We think it's much more useful to talk about those specific policies than use a broad term that is so broad that it's no longer, I think, a useful uh, descriptor. Leah, this book tells, in each of the chapters, there's beautiful photos, and there's lots of stories about real people, people in communities that are uh, trying to break down segregation, teachers, retired people, clergy. Is there a person whose story has really stuck with you? One great story is from Chicago. Um, This project was initiated by a local artist, a photographer named Tanika Johnson. She took the unique layout of the city of Chicago, which is laid out in a perfect grid. So when she folded the map in half, the streets sit perfectly, the north side and the south side of the same street, and the houses on it sit perfectly on top of each other. The north side of Chicago is mostly white. The south side is mostly African-American. So those houses that sit perfectly on top of each other when she folded the map in half, she called them map twins. And she took photographs of those homes to show how, you know, uh, the homes aren't that different, but the context they exist in is very different because of the segregation of, of that city. And then she introduced herself to the residents of the homes and asked if they wanted to meet their map twin. And many did, most did, and they met their map twins, they toured each other's neighborhoods, they started to develop relationships. Now, many of these people had lived in Chicago their whole lives and had never been to the other side of town or known someone who lived there. So they started to see that they had a lot in common, that they weren't that different personally, their neighborhoods were very different. So then they could start to understand why that is and what um, caused those um, disparities between their the different sides of town of Chicago. They then went on to build um, what they called block twin groups, where whole blocks would get together and you know sort of do mutual aid neighborhood beautification efforts. And together, they built sort of a social network that crossed these race lines. So it's an example of, of a, one one sort of simple step, and it doesn't take a folded map to do this. Other communities are doing a similar thing of, of bringing people together from segregated neighborhoods to just start to build those social connections. And then from those social connections, we can start to use those groups and those relationships to advocate for change. We have to take a short break in our conversation with Richard and Leah Rothstein. Their new book is Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. When we're back, solutions. I'm Maureen Harvey filling in for Sheila Cast. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm senior supervising producer Maureen Harvey, filling in for Sheila Cast. America's neighborhoods are as segregated as ever, even as the country grows more racially diverse. Co-authors and father-daughter duo Leah and Richard Rothstein write that a mass democratic movement is needed to desegregate our communities and our society. Their new book is Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. Richard, the book outlines place-based versus mobility-based approaches. What are these two approaches and and what's the difference? Well, a place-based approach is an approach that creates additional resources in low-income segregated neighborhoods. 
part of attacking segregation has to include improving the conditions in low-income segregated neighborhoods that today are frequently uh, absent markets that sell fresh and healthy food. They um, don't have access frequently to good jobs. So place-based strategies are those that improve the conditions in those neighborhoods. And if we improve conditions in those neighborhoods, and this is happening all over the country, it's inevitable that other people than the low-income, usually African-American residents who live there, will begin to move in. When neighborhoods uh, get higher resources, other people will move in, and gentrification begins to occur. So place-based strategies also have to include uh, programs that are enacted at the local level to prevent the displacement of existing residents, or at least to minimize it. You can't prevent it entirely, but you can minimize it. One of them is inclusionary zoning that requires new developments in these communities to have a share of units that are available to both moderate income and lower income residents. Another one of those policies that we describe are land trusts, where nonprofit organizations own the land, but sell housing or rent housing at far below market rates uh, to people who uh, have traditionally lived in those neighborhoods to preserve affordability. So those are some place-based strategies that we think are achievable at a local level that are being achieved in some local levels and that other people can duplicate. The other kind of uh, programs that are necessary in order to redress segregation is opening uh, existing all white, usually suburban communities to diverse residents. And there are many policies that can be pursued there as well at a local level. One of them is challenging exclusionary zoning rules that require that only homes on large lot sizes can be built in certain residential communities. Once you do that, you're in effect preventing people of moderate incomes. I'm not talking just about low income people, people of moderate incomes from uh, living there. And so zoning requirements should be changed to permit duplexes, triplexes, frequently buildings that are indistinguishable externally from a single family home, but that can um, house a more diverse population. So in our book, Just Action, we emphasize that there needs to be a balance of both kinds of policies, policies to improve resources in existing low-income neighborhoods and to open up access to higher income, uh, usually white neighborhoods, to a diverse residence. Leah, I want to pick up on that idea of preventing the displacement of longtime residents of black neighborhoods. One of those solutions is just cause eviction laws. And there's proposed legislation on this before the Maryland General Assembly right now. Last year, a similar bill did not make it out of committee. What are just cause eviction laws and, and how are they a tool in this fight? Yeah, well, in gentrifying communities, often what will happen is landlords will see the demand from higher paying tenants wanting to move into their buildings and they'll find sort of any reasons to evict their lower paying tenants to get them out of those units and get in uh, tenants who will pay higher rent rents. So to protect those longtime tenants from being evicted for, you know, not good reasons, many jurisdictions pass just cause eviction ordinances that say that landlords can only evict their tenants for a just cause. And the ordinance will say what those just causes are. They usually include, um, you know, failure to pay rent, 
over, you know, sustained amount of time or massive property damage or other sort of breaks in the lease agreements. But aside from that, tenants are protected from evictions. And that's a necessary piece to this anti-displacement strategies that often uh, happen when neighborhoods are gentrifying. And I'll add another piece that's important is um, having a right to counsel program for those tenants who do face an eviction. Many jurisdictions and communities around the country have started these programs. They're often they're often collaborations between legal aid societies or local legal aid organizations and either cities and counties help fund the programs and they provide free legal counsel to tenants who are facing an eviction. Often tenants who are being evicted um, don't have any legal counsel or legal resource to fight that eviction in eviction court and they often lose. Usually eviction court is sort of a process of rubber stamping those eviction orders. When a tenant has an attorney present, they have a, a lot more of a fighting chance to either stay in that unit, address the issues that exist in that unit that kept them from paying rent maybe, and avoid having an eviction on their record. So those are two important tools, a just cause eviction ordinance and a right to counsel program to help prevent some of the displacement that can occur when a neighborhood's uh, gentrifying and prices are increasing. Richard, you mentioned inclusionary zoning. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott recently signed into law a pair of inclusionary housing bills. The first requires any development with 20 or more units that is receiving or plans to apply for a major public subsidy to make at least 10 percent of its units affordable to families earning 50 and 60 percent of area median income. That's up to 67000 for a family of four. And the second is a tax credit to offset the rent lost on these more affordable units. What are the the pitfalls in other cities? What are the mistakes that you've seen other cities make when they pursue inclusionary zoning? Well, if I may, I would say the program that you just described has one mistake in it, and that is we don't have affordable housing today for middle-income families, families with jobs uh, but who earn more than 60% of the area median income and housing is unaffordable to them too. We have a housing market today that is bifurcated between market rate uh, housing, which is too expensive for ordinary families, not just the poor. And then we have subsidized units for the very lowest income families, such as you described. So one of the things that we argue very strongly for in Just Action is that inclusionary zoning ordinances should not just provide a share of units for the lowest income tenants, as you just described, but should also have a set aside with a much milder subsidy for families of moderate incomes, because you can't have a healthy community that's just made up of the very rich and the very poor. This is On the Record. I'm senior supervising producer Maureen Harvey in for Sheila Cast. I'm speaking with Richard and Leah Rothstein, co-authors and father-daughter duo behind a new book, the co-authors and father-daughter duo behind a new book, Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. Leah, many of the institutions, lenders, developers, that explicitly discriminated in the past are still around today. What responsibility do they have to rectify our current reality? Well, they have a huge responsibility. They helped to create and sustain and they profited from the segregation of our neighborhoods. So just like we as residents and citizens of our communities have an obligation to remedy the government actions that created the illegal unconstitutional government actions that created the segregation of our communities, these 
institutions and companies have an obligation to remedy their role in creating that segregation. And we give in Just Action some ideas of how they can do that. Now, we also understand that many of these companies and institutions won't just do this on their own, and it'll take an organized group of residents to pressure them to do this. But one pretty simple thing, an institution like a bank could adopt a down payment assistance program targeted to African-American homebuyers who were shut out of home ownership when it was affordable and now don't have the intergenerational wealth needed to buy into homes today. A bank could create a racially explicit down payment assistance program to remedy the impacts of that ongoing discrimination um, to provide African-Americans with down payment assistance to purchase homes today and bring down the cost of that housing so they can get into home ownership. That's one simple example. There are a lot of headlines right now about a housing shortage. And here in Maryland, the Secretary of Housing and Community Development, Jake Day, estimates that the state is short about 100,000 homes. Is that is that a factor in favor of building momentum for these solutions? Is it a hindrance? Do you think, Leah, that this is the right moment for people to to push for change? I do. I, I think this is the right moment. These The housing affordability crisis, the lack of housing availability and supply is an overlapping issue with housing segregation. You know, um, African-Americans with a lower share of wealth, uh, lower average incomes will lose out when there's a housing shortage and the demand overall is greater than the supply of housing. So as we build more housing to address the the overall housing needs, we have to ensure that the ways that we do that also address the ongoing and past discrimination against African-Americans in home ownership and in rental markets and, and ensure that we don't continue to uh, perpetuate those patterns in the new housing that we built. So I think it's a perfect time um, to address both of these together and ensure that we're keeping this racial equity frame and the sort of obligation we have to redress the harms of our government in creating segregated communities. We have to put that into focus in how we address the housing shortage today. Richard, what is at stake if we continue to live this way? Well, the racial segregation that we have in this country underlies our most serious social problems. Uh, it underlies certainly our political polarization. It largely tracks racial lines. And how could we ever expect to have a tolerant, mutually respectful society if African-Americans and whites don't live near one another in, in order to be able to understand each other, in order to be able to empathize with each other, in order to be able to share of their perspectives. So that's one condition uh, that's a consequence of our ongoing segregation. It's also a consequence of our uh, social uh, policies, uh, our health crisis. African-Americans have uh, shorter life expectancies, greater rates of cardiovascular disease uh, because they live in more polluted, more dangerous neighborhoods, less access to primary care physicians. And that corrupts our entire healthcare system. It's one of the reasons why we have so much difficulty enacting a healthcare system that's as adequate as other industrialized countries have. Racial segregation has an enormous and de deleterious impact on our school system. African-American children have uh, achievement on average that's lower than white children because of the conditions of their segregated neighborhoods. It has nothing to do with their native ability I'll give you one quick example of lead poisoning you know about. African-American mm. children are more likely to 
suffer from lead poisoning because of the inadequacy of the of buildings in which they live and the, the water systems that deliver water to their homes. And lead poisoning has a measurable impact uh, on IQ. African-American children are more likely to suffer from asthma because of the pollution in their neighborhoods, the diesel trucks driving by their homes, the empty lots kicking up dust, the dilapidated buildings. And that asthma keeps them up wheezing at night and more likely to come to school drowsy and less able to take advantage of what schools have to offer. And that creates a crisis for everybody in our public education system. Uh, people mistakenly blame the schools for these conditions that are solely the responsibility of neighborhood conditions. So our ongoing segregation is creating enormous problems for us as a society, as a democratic society. And uh, I fear that those problems will not improve uh, unless we do something about our segregation. Richard, Leah, thank you both for speaking with me. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Leah Rothstein is a housing policy expert and consultant. Richard Rothstein is a distinguished fellow of the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow emeritus at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Together, they've written Just Action, How to Challenge Segregation Enacted Under the Color of Law. I'm producer Maureen Harvey, in for Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. 